What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, disseminate, and interrogate and investigate all of our popular culture through the lens of history, mythology, and philosophy. As always, I am stupendously excited to be here today. This is another week of The Midnight Myth. Man, it's been a long time coming to do this episode. We've been kicking it around wondering when it would be the right time to discuss this episode. And we have shelved it and shelved it and shelved it until now being the perfect time, November 2019, it is time for the Midnight Myth to roll up their collective sleeves and analyze and discuss the 2013 smash hit pop culture Disney animated movie about our favorite snow queen and snow princess, we are going to Frozen. Yes, yes. So you said we're going to roll up our sleeves, but I have a feeling we're going to need to roll our sleeves back down and put on a few more layers because we're talking about an eternal winter here. Ooh, I see what you did there, and I like it. It's awesome to be talking about Frozen, and it's the perfect time to be doing so because this week Frozen 2 is coming out. In fact, it's already out in theaters, and some of you may have already seen it. Uh, No worries here if you haven't. There will be no spoilers for Frozen 2. We are going to limit our conversation just to the very first Frozen movie and not talk about its long-awaited sequel. That's because we haven't actually seen the sequel. Because we haven't seen it yet. It is on our to-do list, but we figured no way to honor the sequel than to go back and talk about the original. And there's a lot to discuss in Frozen. There's a lot of different ways and angles that we could tackle it. One of the things I think would be the best way to start, I just want to know, Laurel, how did you come to learn of this movie? Because... We were both older. We weren't kids. Yeah, we were adults when this came out. We weren't doing the midnight myth. Like, like, tell me, like, how did you get into Frozen? So it's actually kind of a cute story uh, because obviously I was an adult. I was in my like mid twenties when it came out, and I was teaching at the time. So I was an assistant teacher for a musical theater class for kids, um, and that was a super fun job for me because I love kids and I love musical theater. So I was basically like 
the teacher at the back of the room who, when you're performing for your parents who are taking all those pictures, I'm the one back there doing the choreography so you don't forget all the dance moves. Uh, so that's kind of what I was doing at the time. And my co-teacher was picking out music and she was doing some stuff from Damn Yankees. She was doing some stuff from Cats the Musical. And she was like, I think we're going to have to do Frozen. I think we have to teach the kids Let It Go because they won't stop talking about it. And I kind of didn't know what Frozen was because I was so busy with work and not really plugged into the pop culture scene. And then I heard Let It Go. And I heard a room full of like 25 kids all singing Let It Go together. And I taught them choreography and I learned the song myself. And I was like, whoa, I think I have to see this movie. Uh, and I actually took myself to the theater to see it by myself uh, and was just completely taken with it. But that's really how I came to it. I was teaching a bunch of kids how to sing Let It Go. And then I was like, I think I need to know what this Let It Go song is about. You know what's funny? I have a very interestingly, um, bizarrely similar story about how I came to Frozen, though I wasn't teaching musical theater because I've never been that cool or that nerdy. I'm not sure which. But it was my niece who was four, who I'm hanging out with my niece. My nephew's two, so he's like really, really small. I've never really talked about my niece and nephew on the podcast before, in part because my sister and brother-in-law, like they don't really want their kids out there on the internet much. But that being said, this story is very appropriate. So my niece comes to like a family gathering in a blue princess gown and is like, Uncle Duke, because that's what she calls me. My name in my family's not Derek as it is here in the podcast. It's Duke. And she's like, Uncle Duke, I'm going to perform a song for you. So I'm like, okay, let me get my iPhone out and record it. And she does Let It Go. And she sings every word. She does as much of the dance moves as she can do as a four-year-old could do for Elsa. And that was the first time I even knew what this was. It was my niece. She even like tied her hair up. And then when Elsa throws her hair down, she pulls out it and she throws the ribbon. And does she stomp on the floor and say, here I stand? Every time she stomps on the floor right on the beat with here I stand. And I'm just sitting here and I'm recording it and you can hear me just giggling with joy watching my niece do this. At the end of this, I'm like, what the fuck is, <laughs> let it go. Like, and where did this come from? What is this song? Why does my niece love it? And like, oh, my, my sister was just like, Uncle Duke, that's Frozen. You don't know Frozen? Looking at me like I was the asshole. And I'm like, apparently I don't know Frozen. And funny, like my journey in watching Frozen then was from hanging out with my niece and nephew. And we'd watch like 10 to 15 minute clips at a time because they had the movie memorized. So they're like, let's put on Frozen. And then their attention would like waver to something else. So we'd have to turn Frozen off. So I saw the entire movie out of sequence until one time my niece and nephew are like, Hey, let's put on frozen. I'm like, okay, we're going to start it from the beginning and we're going to watch the whole movie, which was like instant cool credit for their uncle who wants to start the movie from the beginning and watch the whole thing. Like, Oh, that's great. We don't have to just flash forward to our favorite scenes. And I sat there with my niece and nephew and watched the whole movie frozen was just like, Oh, this movie's great. I totally get why they love it. 
I, what is so great about both of these stories is that, so what we've noticed here is that we both came to Frozen, we both saw Frozen because we had children in our lives and because those kids were so excited about this Disney movie that we had to watch it to get on their level. But then watching the film, it's impossible to ignore the fact that there are some very adult themes, some very mature things that are being played with in this film uh, that I think are subconscious enough and that are uh, you know, accessible enough for young people, but resonate deeply with us as adults. It's really stuck with us to a point where we want to do a podcast about it on on this show. So I, I just think that's great. Truly, of all of the recent, and I'll say recent, by the last like 15 years of Disney animated movies, I do believe there is something to the Frozen and Frozen phenomenon that stands apart from all the other great movies. We have done episodes on Zootopia and Moana, for example, which I absolutely adore. But I think the question at the heart of this Midnight Myth episode is, why Frozen? What made Frozen such a huge hit that it gets the uncharacteristic Disney animated sequel that's actually going to be released in theaters? Because Disney does a ton of sequels to all of their popular properties, but they're usually direct to video they're not very good, and they're just kind of like cash grabs to keep the franchise going. I feel like Disney has pulled out all the stops for Frozen 2. And they waited six years, too, which is a long time for a sequel to something that made that much money. It made a ridiculous amount of money. Absolutely. So they so, really invested time in getting it right, hopefully. So we want to talk about a few different elements of it, some of our personal reflections of Frozen, um, I know I have some interesting meditations on the movie about my own life that I picked out of my recent rewatch of Frozen. But at the end of it, the day, we're really trying to get to why does this movie have such a grip on the cultural zeitgeist, in particular of the cultural zeitgeist of the modern child? Why does the modern kid love this movie so much? And hopefully we will answer that. But before we get too heavy and too deep into our themes. Laurel, I know there's a lot of people out there, you know, I hear every day, what, Derek, you're doing this midnight myth thing, it's great, but I just don't know how to talk to you. And make sure your brand is being digitally supported while at the same time potentially giving you some of my hard-earned money. So if people want to support us and give us their hard-earned money, Laurel, how can they do that? People say that to you every day? Every day. Every single day. All well, the time. if you're one of those people who says that to Derek all the time, uh, the best place to dialogue with us and keep up with all of our new updates and stuff is on Twitter, at The Midnight Myth. You'll get every single update there. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also hit up our website, midnightmyth.com, where you will find tons of extra content, including blogs, that's where you can sign up for our email list, which I am recommending right now because, of course, Black Friday is coming up and we are going to be uh, distributing a discount on some of our merch uh, via that email list. So you'll be the first to know about the discounts on merch if you are signed up for our email list. So make sure you do that on our website. You can also visit our merch store through the website. There's a link to shop and you can see all the tees, totes, uh, phone cases, onesies for your babies, whatever you need. We've got all of it for Midnight Myth and Wheel of Ka, our Dark Tower podcast. 
Uh, lastly, you can support us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month or as much as you feel comfortable giving, and that will give you extra perks as well. Uh, I'm just going to remind you that last week we officially launched our giveaway with the Pop Venture family on YouTube, and there is still time to enter that. So if you haven't yet, make sure that you click the link in our show notes uh, that is going to take you to the Pop Venture family's YouTube video for our Star Wars Funko Pop giveaway and subscribe to their channel and then comment hashtag Midnight Myth or hashtag The Midnight Myth, something to let them know that we sent you there and you'll be entered to win that Star Wars Funko Pop mystery box. It's going to be at least a $50 value of some amazing Star Wars Funkos and some of those will be limited edition and we'll try and throw in some Midnight Myth merch for you as well. You know what's cool about that giveaway, like all like bullshit aside, most of the things that, you know, if you hit us up on Twitter, that's because we want to hear from you. Obviously, if you give us a rating or review or a Patreon or buy our merch, that directly benefits us. The giveaway is really just a way to dialogue with the fans and give you something. Yeah. Like that's what's really cool about it. And I mean, if you're like us, I know, I think I've said this before. I'm certain I have. We have a modest but growing collection of Funko Pops. They're amazing. If you like fun, nerdy stuff, I'm sure you like it too. And you know what's cool? So our friends at the Pump Pop Venture family is a friend of ours and his family just going and collecting rare Funko Pops. They hunt them down. They find them. They unbox them. And then they display them. It's so simple and so adorable just to see multi-generational nerdy toy behavior. Like, I just freaking love it. It's so cool. Yeah, they make it a treasure hunt, and you can be part of that if you enter that giveaway. So make sure you click that link in our show notes, enter that comment that makes them know that the Midnight Myth sent you, and subscribe to their channel so you can join the treasure hunt with them. And uh, back to Frozen. Yeah. It's funny, you mentioned that it made so much money which instantly I started thinking, how much money did it make? The ticket sales of Frozen, so this does not include the Frozen merch, it doesn't include the Frozen Broadway show, it doesn't include all of the extra Frozenness, like the DVD sales, etc. Just the box office ticket sales were $1.274 billion. I don't know if it still is, but it was the highest grossing animated film when it first came out. Yeah, it. I, you know what? I'm not looking at a list of the highest yeah. grossing, but 1.274 billion. I mean, it's crazy. That's insane. So there is something to this movie, and I'm really excited to kind of figure out, and from a midnight myth lens, what about this? What makes it so universal in its appeal? And can we learn something about storytelling writ large? But before we do that, too, I just want to give the briefest of briefest of brief recaps because we've all seen Frozen. If you haven't, here's your spoiler wall. Frozen is the story of two sisters, Elsa and Anna. Um, Elsa being the oldest, Anna being the youngest. And Elsa has these magical ice powers. She inadvertently and accidentally shoots ice into her younger sister's head when they're children. And the decision is made by magical trolls and the king and queen of their kingdom to lock Elsa away and isolate her from everyone until she learns how to control her powers. Meanwhile, Anna has all memories of magic wiped from her mind. Anna grows up isolated, alone, and without any connection to her sister until the day of her sister's coronation after the tragic death of her parents who died at sea. In this, Anna meets 
Hans, a charming, dashing prince. They have their meet cute and everything seems right in the world until during the coronation ball, Elsa's powers are accidentally unleashed when Elsa refuses to allow Anna and Hans to marry, having only met for a few hours. Then things kind of precipitate quickly. Uh, Elsa retreats from the kingdom, builds her snow palace, sings the beautiful song, Let It Go, and unknowingly and unwittingly creates a perpetual never-ending winter, which is dooming the entire kingdom to death, and all of the foreign dignitaries are trapped in their palace. Anna's quest is to find Elsa and to have her uh, undo the never-ending winter. In it, she meets the character Kristoff, who is helping her get to the Snow Palace, as well as the uh, snowman created and brought to life from Elsa's powers named Olaf. They are ultimately unsuccessful in convincing Elsa to come back. Elsa inadvertently wounds her sister again, this time stabbing her in the heart with her ice powers, and slowly but surely, Anna is becoming a permanent icicle. When she gets back to the palace, she thinks an act of true love will save her, and she believes her betrothed and beloved Hans will save her with a kiss, and it turns out he's just a usurping motherfucker who's trying to just knock off the princesses as fast as he can so he can make himself king. Long story short, Hans almost kills Elsa. Anna sacrifices herself to save Elsa from Hans as she is turning into an icicle. The act of true love was Anna saving Elsa. She is freed from the curse, and then Elsa learns that it is, in fact, love that can, that can thaw a broken heart, and it is love that can thaw the icicled kingdom. The kingdom is rejuvenated. Summer is re restored. Olaf, the lovely snowman, gets a permanent snow cloud above him so he doesn't melt, and all is well in the world with the hint that Anna and Kristoff were actually the love pair that they've been looking for. Oh, great recap. Thank you. Ah, oh, I love this movie. It's just so delightful. So where do, would you like to begin? I would love to spend a little bit of time with the inspiration and source material for Frozen, because as you may know, uh, Frozen is inspired by the uh, Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, The Snow Queen. And we say inspired uh, because it is very loosely based on this fairy tale. It's uh, only got a few things in common with it, and mostly the plot does not resemble the Snow Queen. But I think it's important to spend a little bit of time with it. And part of the reason why is that uh, Disney has been trying to make the Snow Queen since 1937. There have been numerous failed attempts to adapt the Snow Queen for either animation or an animation live-action hybrid, and these attempts go all the way from Walt Disney's lifetime through to 2010, when the last failed attempt was abandoned. It wasn't until they finally conceived Frozen that they were able to do something with this story. Now, why? Why is that? Disney has never had a hard time adapting a difficult fairy tale, right? Look at The Little Mermaid, which is also based on a Hans Christian Andersen story, a dark disturbing, uh, strange, and complex fairy tale that they were able to turn into a total classic. So why did they have so much trouble with the Snow Queen? So I'm going to tell you the story of the Snow Queen. Uh, it's lengthy and it is complex, so I'm just going to boil it down to its most important parts. So, once upon a time, 
Uh, the story begins with a hobgoblin or a little demon fashioning a magic mirror that reflects everything back worse. Uh, it magnifies the bad things and erases all the good things. So if you hold it up to your face, you'll only see like your nose as big as your head or uh, just everything totally distorted. And he gets a real kick out of this. So he's just totally messing up the countryside. Now, a bunch of other demons uh, want to fly the mirror up to heaven where they can mess with the angels with this magic mirror. But it's very slippery and it slips out of their hands and it shatters, lodging all of its many fragments in the eyes of passerbys. And it permanently distorts their perception so that everything looks terrible to the people who have this glass lodged in their eyes. Next, we're going to meet two poor children, Gerda and Kay. They're little kids who live next door to one another and are best friends. They love each other like brother and sister. They frequently connect over a tiny flower box that they're able to share in this city because no one's able to have a full-size garden. The houses are just too close together. So they love the flowers and they share that. Um, one day, as they're playing, a fragment of that cursed mirror with that demon glass hits Kay in his eye and his heart and turns his heart to ice. He becomes cold, he becomes cruel, and he's only interested in the perfection of the falling snowflakes. So the only thing that doesn't look terrible to him, that doesn't suddenly get distorted, are the snowflakes. Even the flowers look worm-eaten to him. All he wants to focus on is the snow. And he becomes very cruel to Gerda and teases her and makes fun of her. It's very tragic. Now, he stops wanting to play with his best friend, and he heads off to play with the older boys in town who like to tie their sleds to the back of people's carts in the town square uh, and ride along with them as fast as they go. So he hitches his sled up to the back of a sleigh, and it just happens that this sleigh is driven by the Snow Queen, who brings the winter. Now, she takes him all the way to her palace, which is way up north, and she kisses him, further freezing his heart and making him immune to the cold so he can't feel how cold it is there. Now, because she's almost made of snow, Kay can look at her and think that she is lovely and the most perfect thing he has ever seen. And so he's perfectly happy to be taken there and forgets all about his life and forgets all about Gerda. Now, meanwhile, back in the city, Gerda believes that Kay has died. She thought he drowned in the river, and she is just completely distraught and devastated over the loss of her friend. So she throws her shoes in the river, thinking that if she can give something new and beloved to the river, it might give her friend back. It's very sad. But her shoes keep floating ashore. So she starts to hope that maybe Kay might be alive, and she undertakes this massive quest to get him back. Now, there's tons of adventures, ones that I won't recount all of. She meets a witch with a flower garden. She meets a talking crow. She meets a prince and a princess who are so kind and they take her in. Uh, all kinds of things happen to her on the way to the north where she finally reaches the Snow Queen's palace where Kay is imprisoned. Now, he's been sitting there for all of this time with a Chinese puzzle box. Now, the Snow Queen gave it to him and said, as soon as you can unlock this with this secret word, uh, I will let you free, and you can have the whole world and a new pair of skates. So the Snow Queen leaves to bring winter to the other warmer countries, and this is when Gerda shows up at the palace. She's so happy to have found Kay that she cries, and her tears are warm. 
So they fall on Kay's body and they warm him and they melt his frozen heart and the jagged piece of ice falls out of his eye and he remembers everything and realizes how much he loves his friend and becomes his old self again. They solve the puzzle together. The word, the mystery word was eternity and they escape and they return home. Now, the final line is of the story, I think, is pretty significant to Frozen especially, so I just want to read it to you here. Quote, And they both sat there, grown up, yet children at heart, and it was summer, warm, beautiful summer. End quote. I love that last line because it reminds us of summer being restored to Arendelle at the end of Frozen, but it also reminds me of you and me sharing our stories of coming to Frozen, uh, being adults and watching this movie and feeling like children at heart. And I think that's a huge part of uh, Hans Christian Andersen's story is that uh, that childlike sense of, of love and wonder is, is something we can carry with us through to old age. But as you can see, there are very few similarities to Frozen in this story. So how did we get from point A to point B? Well, what are the similarities? On the surface, um, there's a Snow Queen, uh, there's a reindeer somewhere in the story. Um, the Snow Queen is more of a pure villain in the Anderson version than Elsa, who's a little bit more relatable. Uh, and it's set in Scandinavia. Frozen is really based on Norway and the Norwegian fjords. And the only country that Anderson expressly references is Finland. Um, but more importantly, I think the Frozen heart motif comes into play. We have, uh, in both stories, a character who literally has their heart frozen. And in both stories, we have a pair of young people who love each other deeply, but suddenly have to grow apart. Uh, and in both stories, it's love, it's redemptive and not necessarily romantic love that saves the characters. So those are really the, the major similarities that we're working with here. But for Disney, trying to adapt the Snow Queen over the last you know 70 years was not able to make it work for one reason and that's that they couldn't understand the character of the Snow Queen. They couldn't make her relevant, they couldn't make her relatable, until they were able to find that perfect uh, kind of breakthrough moment of identifying the uh, Gerda character, Anna, and the Snow Queen character, Elsa, as sisters. That was the breakthrough. Let's have these people mean something to each other so that the Snow Queen isn't just a villain who shows up for five seconds in this fairy tale and then disappears. Yeah. It sounds like in the original Hans Christian Andersen, and I haven't read the story. So thank you for having gone through course, and, and, yeah. and doing all of that well, research. I, and I love Hans Christian Andersen. So it's my pleasure. It sounds like the snow queen in the Hans Christian Andersen version is very much a personification of winter. It has the feel of an ancient mythic quality yeah, she's like a goddess. When winter comes, it's not because of any like climatic reason. It's not because of any divine sin. It's because here comes the Snow Queen coming in to making sure that it's winter. And then there just happens to be another character with a frozen heart that's just like, I'm already the Snow Queen. You already have the frozen heart, or the frozen heart part of me, so just come with me. Whereas in the movie Frozen, you know, Anna is not an immortal being. She's not the personification of winter. She's just a kid with a really amazing magical power. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it has sort of a, 
Anna is certainly the Gerda character, but uh, Elsa becomes both the Snow Queen and Kay. Uh, she becomes the person who has to close herself off from the person that she loves, and she becomes the reason that that closing off has to happen. You know what's interesting? Just having this meditation right now, permit me a little tangent, and feel free to jump in if I ever like go too far off the fucking rails here. Go ahead. But the fairy tale folklore myth that Disney has capitalized on its movies has come from, largely speaking, Germanic and uh, Norse myths and fairy tales and folklores that emerged at a point in time when there was a transition period out of the medieval into the modern. And people were telling these stories as a way to connect these old theories and these old motifs that exist presumably before there was a pre-Christian um, Germanic or Norse people. So when... The, the 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 areas that we now know as Germany, Switzerland, Finland, Norway, when those were the outskirts of the Roman Empire, where nothing but the fiercest of savages lived from a Roman perspective, we had the emergence of a German culture. They told myths and folklores, and those bubbled up. And then we get to this period where people are writing these stories down, and it's a period that intersects between the like like the birth of modernity and the end of the ancient. Are you with me so far? I am with you. What I will um, add to this, though, is that uh, Hans Christian Andersen is writing in the 19th century, and he's creating these stories out of whole cloth rather than um, adapting them from folktale. Uh, but he is incorporating some really uh, old and really universal symbols, especially to the Scandinavian people. Well, okay, so here's my point. If we analyze and ask ourselves a question, when is frozen? In the terms of the, like, European history, when was there an Arendelle? And the reality is one of my interesting thoughts looking back, watching it now, it's like, okay, so there are a few clues as to the when. Clue one, the clothing. The clothing is clearly the... Um, a more modern imperial garb so that it looks more like 18th and 19th century. What you would see, they look more modern. The setting, the setting is medieval as fuck. Yeah. It appears to be feudal, right? There's this isolated, almost city state quality to Arendelle. It has walls that surround it. The weaponry, the weaponry is all ancient in there. Right, So the weaponry, you just have crossbows and swords, but you have people wearing the uniforms of soldiers who look like they could march with Napoleon with cannon and musket. So there seems to be a conflict in terms of that. And so I feel like, just another point too, one of the central motivations of a sort of villain character, the Duke of Weaselton, he's interested in complex trade negotiations Another symbol of, of more modernity. You don't think of um, causation of ancient history about complex trade, though that did actually happen in history. But you don't really think of that. When you see this character who has spectacles and a toupee talking about accessing the riches, you get the sense of a bourgeois modern elitist, even though he's not a bourgeois or modern elitist. But you get the sense of modernness to his motivations. It's about an individual seeking wealth from another nation to benefit himself and trying to leverage that relationship there. 
you contrast that to Hans, who's just a fucking usurper. That shit's fucking ancient, right? You know, I was born 13th in line to the throne, so the only way I'm going to make my bones is a good marriage and knock off everyone in my way. So you see this confluence of the modern and the ancient in this story. And I think thematically it works with that as well. I think the themes of Frozen are trying to like mash ancient fairy tale motifs adapted by many people like Hans Christian Andersen with more modern beliefs. Specifically speaking that, you know, the idea you can't meet someone for two seconds and find your soulmate. A narrative, Disney itself, in its you know relatively recent history, propagated probably more than any other major Hollywood narrative brand. The idea that there's a princess and a prince and they can meet and they could look at each other and that could be the true love that could heal a kingdom. This movie specifically inverts and also directly mocks. It gets mocked by Elsa, who says, no, Anna, you can't marry this man you just met. And it gets even more mocked, literally mocked by Kristoff, uh, who just makes fun of her, being like, how could you like get engaged to a dude you don't even know? What's his last name? What's his favorite sandwich? What's his shoe size? What's his this and this? And she has no idea, just mocking this idea. I think the space that um, I think both the where Arendelle is in history, it's both ancient and it's both a little modern. I think the, th- the themes of the narrative are both a little ancient and a little modern. What does, what does the Duke of Weaselton do as soon as he sees the magic power? This guy that represents modernity, who has glasses, he has a toupee, he's got a fancy uniform. What does he do? He goes, witch, sorceress, burn her. Yeah, he's ready to see if she weighs the same as a duck. Uh, but I That's think, a deep cut reference. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think, I think this is a really interesting line of inquiry that you've opened up because this idea that Frozen uh, straddles the ancient and the modern, straddles this sort of timeless fairy tale quality with uh, complex trade and with uh, progressive ideas is, is really fascinating and I think uh, works on several different levels. Uh, one of those being uh, how does frozen live within the legacy of disney's creative output uh so you already mentioned that uh, anna is happy to get engaged to to hans the day that she meets him which in snow white in sleeping beauty in uh cinderella that's fine that's that's the, that's the end happens. of the movie yeah we met we're getting married like it's done uh, smash cut to the wedding and we're riding off in a pumpkin Um, that would be fine in Disney's uh, previous creative output. But Frozen is at this interesting place where it is trying to carve out a path for the future and it's trying to do something different while also acknowledging that. Uh, One of the things that really took people by surprise with Frozen was that for the first time we had two co-protagonists who were women and who were sisters and whose primary uh, drive for the story was not finding a husband, was not, uh, you know, landing a true love. It's still certainly a huge part of Anna's story. Uh, Her love with Hans and then her budding love with Kristoff takes up the entire film, but uh, the drive behind Anna's quest is to redeem her sister. 
and the act of true love is an act of familial true love, an act of sacrifice for someone that you care about, uh, not just a romantic kiss. But Frozen is at this weird uh, crossroads where it has to pay so much homage to uh, its fairy tale uh, predecessors and to its Disney predecessors in order to make us comfortable with them ultimately subverting those tropes. Yeah, really interesting point. You know, if I told you that there was a Disney movie in which a princess's parents would die when she was young, she'd be locked into a castle against her will, isolated from anyone and everyone, that she would grow up and finally have a chance meeting with a handsome prince, only to be separated from that love by the evil Snow Queen, who has perpetuated never-ending winter in the kingdom, you'd be like, oh, that's not too dissimilar to all the Disney. Like, that's literally the plot of Frozen, except it's not. Right. (laughs) Like, except there's more to the story. The never-ending perpetual winter by the evil Snow Queen is actually an accident brought on by the childhood trauma that both Anna and Elsa share. This budding romance between the, um, the... the dashing prince and the princess turns out to be a Machiavellian power play to secure Arendelle as a kingdom to strip it from the rightful heirs. All of the like layers and levels that this could be the standard fairy tale get upended and modernized. They get recontextualized for a contemporary lens that is both positive for the female role within the narrative of the, of the story giving them both agency and action, redefining love as the attribute that unites us, but stripping it of its romance and its potentially like misogynistic control and allowing it to be about a pure sisterhood and totally reinventing the fairy tale. I mean, I mean, I think that's the why of this movie. It contemporarily reinvents the fairy tale is completely progressive and while at the same time being completely fucking ancient, having magic trolls doing medicine to hear a frozen mind, but they can't hear a frozen heart with snow queens who can summon snow monsters and snow snowmen to life at will to sword fights. And it has all of these amazing elements, but put at its heart also has a very progressive new message that I think is the reason that Everyone wanted to see this movie. It's the reason why everybody loved it. Elsa should be a villain. Well, and in the abandoned, uh, you know, failed attempts to make the Snow Queen, she was. She was Ursula. There was even a version uh, that they were kicking around in the early 2000s that was going to be called Anna and the Snow Queen, where the Anna character goes to the Wicked Snow Queen Uh, And it's like, I'm brokenhearted. Can you please freeze my heart so I don't feel this pain? And then later the Snow Queen shows up to sabotage her future happiness. That's the Little Mermaid. Like she was going to be Ursula. And they brought in Jennifer Lee, a a woman screenwriter, to work on this. And they made this final breakthrough saying, let's make them sisters so they're actually important to each other. And let's give Elsa a purpose. Let's try to understand her. And the thing about, uh, you know, trying to understand villains is that sometimes they stop being villains. And I think Let It Go is 
one of the most important turning points for us in the entire movie because we haven't spent a whole lot of time with Elsa. We've seen a little bit of the uh, pain and uh, control she's had to live with in her childhood into adolescence and adulthood. But in Let It Go, we get to really understand her, her psyche. We get to understand that she has lived her entire life being told she's not allowed to be who she is, being told that she has to suffer in silence and alone, even though the person that she loves most, who wants to be with her the most, is just on the other side of the door. This is good. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. sound like weird, but I connect so hard to the character Elsa. <laughs> I want to hear like, it. Yeah, tell as me. Like a, like, as like a very straight white male like you connect to the character Elsa, like shouldn't I connect to Kristoff or something like that, which I connect to the male characters as well. One of the things that just like strikes me about this is Elsa displays this uncontrollable ice magic. It nearly um, injures, potentially kills her sister. So the response of the parents is to lock her away and it's to teach her to try to control. And that control is very dogmatic it's very one-sided and it's very unenlightened. Do this, just put on gloves. Eventually it'll get better. Don't feel. All you have to do is not feel. Let's tell a child to not feel and that'll contain the power so suddenly you can actually go out and play. And in many ways, Elsa's robbed of a childhood, which I never was. But where I connected as a kid with learning disabilities, as a kid that like it didn't just mesh and things didn't come naturally academically, Combine that with the fact that I was also very asthmatic as a kid and couldn't really, you know, play sports. There were moments and times when my parents were trying to help me learn to do basic academic things like read and write and arithmetic, and they just didn't fucking work. And they were like, just do it this way. Just keep doing it this way. If you just do it this way, you'll get it. And this is not to vilify my parents. Quite the opposite. They spent the time with me because they loved me in the same way that, um, you know, Elsa's parents spend the time with her because they loved her. But my parents were just not equipped to help me deal with my learning disability. And because of that, it was tough for all of us. Similarly with Elsa, they're not equipped to deal with her magic ability. And because of that, it was tough for all of them. And the idea of your parents just being like, if only you could spell like the way I spell, You'd be able to pass your spelling test. Why can't you do that? Just do it this way. Well, if only you could just not have ice powers and just put on these fucking gloves. Turn them off, yeah. And just control the way you feel because emotion makes it worse. Similar when you're dyslexic and you're trying to do a conventional, like, you know, thing like spelling or arithmetic. Once you get emotional, it gets a lot worse. Your emotions really can govern your ability to reason in a non-dyslexic way. And so you'd get emotional and then suddenly you would start off knowing what two plus two equals and knowing how to spell the word road. But after like 
an hour of frustrating, like do it this way. Suddenly they're like, what's two plus two. And you're like, I don't even know what that means anymore. Cause my brain's just shutting off. And like, I really connected with the idea that her parents wanted to help her, but didn't have the tools to do it. And they were trying to just sort of brute force her into what they thought would contain the power. And they never, they never understood the power to begin with. And hence it ended up breeding this isolation within her that just culminates in an ultimate act of rebellion, which is walk away from the throne, walk away from the ball, walk away from your responsibility, walk away from fucking summer, you know, and just make it fucking winter for forever and just not care about anyone. And I totally like connected to that in a weird way. I I really like that because it's not the obvious parallel, but it shows, uh, you know, another way in which people can connect to this character. Another reason that this movie uh, succeeded. And that's, it again, goes back to why it was so hard to adapt the Snow Queen is because they couldn't make uh, the Snow Queen relatable. Well, they made the Snow Queen so relatable, she became the character that people latched onto the most. She's more popular than Anna. You don't see that many uh, young girls going as Anna for Halloween. You even see Kristen Bell, who plays Anna, having to dress up as Elsa for uh, her daughter's edification. Uh, so uh, there's, it's just a really interesting thing that you can relate to her on so many levels. And the thing that your parents and Elsa's parents had in common is is good intention, is pure intention, is the thought that like, okay, the world wants you to be like this. We understand that the world is like that and we are going to do whatever we have to to keep you and your family uh, safe from this world because we can't necessarily change the way the world works right now. Uh, And they prepare Elsa for the fact that if she does let this out, if she does uh, show her powers to the outside world, she will be branded a witch. She will be uh, cast out. She'll be ostracized. People will fear her. And that's exactly what happens when she does accidentally let this slip at her coronation. Uh, the important thing to acknowledge and remember is that this is a young woman being groomed for power. Uh, she's the heir to the throne. And she unfortunately has to come into that power prematurely because her parents die very young. Uh, But there is a a deep parallel to the way uh, young women are frequently brought up in this society, especially if they are ambitious women and women who are interested in seeking any amount of power or authority. Uh, We are constantly told that our emotions are a liability and that if we do let them out, they will uh, cause people not to take us seriously or fear us or ostracize us. Uh, And Elsa very much deals with that in coming to uh, her coronation. She can't let any emotion show because then people will cast her out. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Elsa is supposed to, as a character, stand in as a metaphor for being you know, a kid growing up in the eighties with learning disabilities. I was able to read into part yeah, of her journey, which I think is really powerful. And, and because, you know, they, they say being dyslexic, the best way I've ever heard to describe it is that it's not a learning disability. It's a conditioning disability. We don't condition well, we don't brute memorize well, but we learn great. Um, Elsa doesn't really have a power disability. She doesn't have a disability at all. In fact, she has amazing power And she's just been told to contain and tamp it down and conform that to how everyone else wants her to be. 
I do think you really hit the nail on the head. Elsie is supposed to represent the implicit mistrust and distaste and um, longing for having a man in charge over a woman. It's telling how the other noblemen, how easily they cast out Elsa and how quickly they fall in line under Hans. And they really do that very fast. Elsa shows a little bit of magic. She's a sorceress. She leaves. Anna goes after her. She, she Anna herself is just like, let Hans be in charge. This person she doesn't even know. Yeah, and, he seems like a level-headed guy. And what does he do? He just starts getting the kingdom to fall in line, to follow him, to the point where he sentences Elsa to die. And all the other nobles are like, good, you did the right thing. Kill the queen. Yeah. You know, and really, he's just manipulating this entire thing. So I do think there is a deeper meditation that we can take outside of Frozen to wonder and scrutinize, like, hey, like, are we okay? Just like, as like modern Americans okay with women with power? Are we okay with that? Really? Or are we afraid that they're all Elsa's and the, not just the Elsa's, but the actual snow Queens. Are we afraid that, Hey, the, if a woman has power and she's cold hearted, she'll just reign perpetual winter over all of us. Right. Yeah. Is that fear still deeply within us? Uh, I think Elsa very, uh, very articulately, uh, understands that, especially through Let It Go. Indeed. Well, and it's not just about women in power or women who are ambitious, too. There is something to the uh, the idea of a woman being icy or a woman being cold that I think is very potent uh, and that the Elsa character uh, really goes out of her way to to give some depth to that perception but I think in some ways that comes back to Hans Christian Andersen. Um, it's suggested and likely assumed that the character of the Snow Queen was inspired by the object of Hans Christian Andersen's obsession, uh, the opera singer Jenny Lind, a woman that he loved deeply so much that he actually proposed marriage to her via passing her a note while she was getting on a train. He was a very shy man, but they were just friends. She loved him like a brother and she refused his marriage proposal. His life was very sad, uh, and he pretty much only had unrequited loves, both men and women in his life. Nobody ever really loved him back, and it's very tragic. Um, but it, it, it is suggested that the Snow Queen was his perception of her as untouchable, as icy, as impenetrable. Uh, and Elsa is kind of how we understand the dimension to that perception of a woman as icy. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, even if we date ourselves back to ancient Greece, it is through the tears of Demeter and the sadness at the loss of her Persephone that she pulls grain from the world and winter comes. The idea of a, from a ancient myth perspective, it is from the feminine that you get both the blessings and the cursings of the world that you get both the fertility plus the barrenness and there's this sort of um, mythic duality there playing within feminine energies from myth from a long time. And the idea of like, that's an icy cold woman. And what we see in Elsa is that she is both manifest of that because she literally ends summer 
She makes it so that Arendelle cannot grow. It cannot live. It cannot have seasons. So she is a literal manifestation of that. But in the like, also in on the, the narrative, of the story is that the reason that this happens was because she was told to repress herself as a child and suffered from a type of child abuse, well-meaning, but a type of child abuse that isolated her from everyone that didn't give her the abilities to like just brute force control. Your emotions is not the way to teach someone to control their emotions. Yeah. And her power then as she, as she literally becomes the queen and literally assumes the political power. It's at the same time where her magical power is unleashed. These things happen simultaneously, not by coincidence. And the world is not ready for a queen who is also not only the like most political powerful person, but the most literally magically powerful person. And she is shunned. She is instantly shunned and worse off than that, worse than being shunned. She inadvertently harms the people she loves through her own power. Her, her, her power is so uncontained and uncontrolled that it harms people that she's loves and she's meant to feel guilty of it. It would be like, it would be like giving Luke, Luke Skywalker a lightsaber without Obi-Wan Kenobi and having him accidentally chop off Han's arm and being like, well, it's your fault, Luke, you fucking idiot. Yeah, well, it speaks to a powerful double standard that Elsa uh, has this power that she she didn't ask for, uh, and she is told to be a certain way with it, and then she's criticized for being that way with it. Uh, it's like the, the the culture expected one thing of her, and then when she delivered on that thing, she was then uh, shunned for delivering on that thing. Uh, it's just a, a, a painful sort of Gordian knot that she's unable to escape. Yeah, and it it really is an interesting level of of complexity and tragicness to a character who, by like standard fairy tale definition, should be the villain, turns out to be the hero that captures the imagination and the zeitgeist of young girls everywhere. Because I think, and you could speak more clearly to it, but I see it emanating from my four year old niece years and years ago. She wanted to let it fucking go. She wants to be like, my power can't be fucking contained. Fuck anyone that says that it can be. And I think that's awesomely punk rock. Yeah. If you're afraid of me, you should be because I am more powerful than you think. And that's something that speaks deeply to the hearts of women who have been told to keep our emotions in check and have been told to stay meek and not speak up too much in meetings. Like it speaks to all ages. Yeah, let that shit motherfucking go. Let it go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can we pivot a little bit? Yeah. I'd like to talk about just the general setting in that how Norse this movie is. Absolutely. We see lots of different Norse iconography from how they decorate the town square. To the reindeer. To the reindeer, to the rune writing that we see, and also to the trolls. And I think... That's a really interesting, fun element that I'd like to talk about. Uh, it is really interesting because uh, trolls are a significant part of Norse mythology and later Scandinavian folklore, but they don't really appear in Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen. The closest that we get is that the hobgoblin with the demon glass that I mentioned is sometimes translated to a troll. Like he's sometimes called an evil troll 
in that story, but then he disappears. Uh, so there really is no correlation between that and the source material. So why would they include these trolls as such a huge part of it? Um, in uh, Norse mythology, trolls are usually lumped in with the Jotnar, which is the sort of race of, of people that the frost giants are, which we've talked about before and are a major part of the Thor movies, if you need a pop culture reference for that. But then uh, once we move into Scandinavian folklore, they become a little bit more defined and a little bit more nebulous as well because there are a mishmash of cultures. There's Norwegian, there's Finnish, there's da Danish, which is uh, Anderson's background, and so much more. And at times they become a sort of all-purpose nature deity. Uh, but usually trolls are associated with the outdoors. They dwell in mountains or caves. Usually they're quite large uh, and almost never friendly to humans. So uh, I'm thinking about like the cave trolls of Lord of the Rings or the mountain trolls of The Hobbit are a good reference for that. Um, but there are occasionally trolls similar to what we see in Frozen who are more uh, like the fairy folk of like the Celtic tradition. Uh, those are usually called the Huldra folk or hidden folk in uh, Scandinavian folklore. Um, I love that they sort of hide as rocks when they don't want to be seen. Um, most troll traditions have uh, the, the sort of aspect of the story where if the sun comes up, they turn to stone, but Frozen sort of transformed that into this idea that these uh, trolls could control when they become rocks or when they can be seen just as a way of protecting themselves. And they're friendly. They're lovers. They, uh, you know, they want to have family. They want to love humans. And sometimes they will trick you into getting married without telling you. But most of the time they have pretty good intentions and pretty good insight. Yeah, I think the trolls in this, and I think you hit the nail on the head, the troll is usually um, couched in the monstrous. Trolls are usually dangerous. They're monstrous. They're not friendly and nice little creatures that help people like find their romantic matches and adopt orphans and try to raise them. Um, that being said, we also have in pop culture the tradition of those little trolls with the the yeah, big, like the funky jewel hair, yeah. you know, that are much more cute and friendly. So there are some incarnations in, you know, modern times of trolls, not in the monstrous form. And I think we can see these trolls sort of as a metaphor for the myth of this entire movie, which is the intersection of the modern and the new. If there are trolls, yeah, they're not going to be these dangerous monsters. They're going to be these nice, friendly, more like the um, seven dwarves which dwarves and trolls also do represent a connection to the yeah, Norse. Yeah. And they both represent a connection to these intermediaries between the, the material and the spiritual world that there are creatures that have a connection with one foot in the material world. They live with us another foot in the spiritual world, which they can channel these spiritual energies and interpret them from people. Now, trolls typically in Norse are, like you say, they're monsters, they eat people, they turn to stone, you don't really like them, but the elves and the dwarves are the ones that can sometimes be beneficial or helpful. Uh, dwarves are also sometimes called the dark elves, and sometimes they can be assholes too. You know, we see this race of trolls, they do a few pragmatic things that we can sort of interpret the symbols. So one, 
they are connected to magic. When they see Elsa as a child, they say, curse or born. So they know that there's two ways that a human can come to these powers. Elsa's born with it, which I think is a significant symbol to say her power is innate. It didn't come from like a fairy godmother who hated her, or an evil stepmother, or a old wizard in a cave that wanted to usurp the throne. She was born with it. And they're able, based upon that, to diagnose and cure Anna. And they are also necessary in helping understand what Anna happens once the ice hits the heart, when she's now a presumably older girl, young girl, teenager. Yeah, yeah. You know, like she's a, a Disney princess she's age. She's of age. <laughs> yeah, Disney princess age. Yeah. You know, in ancient Scandinavian, she'd be 12, but from modern times, she'd probably 20. You know? Sure, yeah. You know? So she's somewhere between 12 and 20. Um, and they're able to then still diagnose this and give the necessary information that our heroes need when they need it to usher them from one phase of the adventure to the other. So Anna and Kristoff fail to defeat the Snow Queen. They fail to bring Summer back. And one of them is injured, so they have to go to these mystic entities who are both part magical and part material, who are both part in the divine and part in the non-divine, to give them what they need so that they can get to the next phase of the adventure, which brings them back to Arendelle so they can eventually confront not the Snow Queen, but Hans. Yeah, and the uh, the space that the trolls inhabit uh, looks like a sacred space. Uh, they sort of imitate a stone circle when they're not in like full live form, when they're still as stones. Uh, so it looks like we're entering a place where we're going to commune with the divine. Uh, Anna and Kristoff have to leave their disastrous encounter with Elsa and pass through this redemptive place where these trolls come to life and are like, hey, look at you. You're not perfect. Guess what? You're still capable of incredible uh, redemptive love. Isn't that awesome? And that helps to give Anna and Kristoff the strength and the courage going forward to perform the sacrificial acts that they both do. Kristoff sacrifices uh, you know, his shot at a future with Anna by delivering her to Hans, thinking that she's going to be saved. And then Anna ultimately sacrifices her life for Elsa. And I think without that encounter with the trolls, who are able to say, like, love is love is a many splendor thing. Like you can you can change the world and you can change people and you can change everything around you just by offering love, just by giving love to this thing rather than asking for anything in return. And another thing about their song is that people aren't perfect. Yeah. Love is not, yeah. Love is not this like magical, like prince and princess. Then you're whisked away. Like, no, you know, he needs all, he needs some work, but so do you. We all need a little bit of work. They like couch the love the romance out of the idea of the mystical and make it very pragmatic. Like, yeah, you know, he's not ideally matched for every woman right now. You might have to help him do this and that, which as a husband, you definitely have to go through. Like you're married and you're like, oh yeah, I could be a creep and a cretin sometimes. And thank God my wife's here to make sure I'm not an asshole. Yeah. But then there's this acknowledgement of the fact that like whoever you are, whoever you're matched with, 
You're not going to be the same people every day. You're going to be constantly trying to improve yourself. Maybe you'll backslide, maybe you'll slip up, but if you're together and you offer that love and you continue to try to make yourself better, you'll make each other better. Uh, which I think is a really beautiful message about love and a more nuanced message about love that uh, than anything that Disney has offered in the past. Something that I just really appreciate. Yeah, which is why this is the intersection of the modern and the ancient. Absolutely. Do you have anything to say about Kristoff? Um, Kristoff is great. I, I think he's a great character um, uh, as a sort of uh, double, as a sort of... Uh, mirror of Hans. Uh, he's presented as uh, less of a Prince Charming, but he's still certainly uh, handsome and rugged and conventionally attractive, right? But he uh, accesses this uh, sort of interesting space for the Disney princess where usually I think we see uh the girl go raz- rags to riches. We usually see like the Cinderella story or Belle, you know, where, where the girl gets a glow up. And here we kind of get the, um, the woman going out and finding the, the man of the people. I just think that's an interesting reversal there. Yeah. He's Aladdin. He's Aladdin. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. Yeah. So yeah, I, I As get I that. was saying that I was like, Oh no, he's Aladdin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, he, he's Aladdin. I mean, I think it's, it's cool that, his reward at the end of all of this is that he gets an upgraded sled. He's and still, a job. Yeah, yeah, he's still a commoner, and his job is to still get ice. And I like that, you know, like the whole social order doesn't upend. And yeah, he and and a kiss, and that's nice, but like it's not a hev- happily ever after in the way that the modern myth shouldn't be. The modern Disney princess myth in particular shouldn't be just Snow White and Sleeping Beauty um, you know, dancing with the handsome prince at to a chorus. Riding off into the sunset. It's yeah. gotta be like, you get a kiss, here's your sled, get me ice, because I'm an aristocrat and my water is warm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um uh, I guess the only thing we haven't talked about yet, if we're done with Kristoff. Sure, yeah. Um, anything to say about Olaf? I always forget how how hilarious Olaf is. Like, I, I remember that he was funny and it's Josh Gad playing this character. So it, it's going to be great. But I, we were rewatching it this week and I was laughing out loud and I was bursting at the seams with laughter. I just think he's so funny and so sincere and charming. Um, and, you know, another character who gets to realize that uh, putting someone else's needs before your own is the most incredible reward you can possibly ask for. He uh, he is born just of the fact that he it, is named Olaf and he likes warm hugs, but that evolves into, like, some people are worth melting for. And I think that's a beautiful message. I love it. I was just going to say, I'd melt for you, Laurel. Oh, I'd melt for you too, Derek. All right, final thoughts? Uh, this has been really fun. I love Frozen. Uh, I think probably the, the reason that I love Frozen, uh, the deepest reason that I love Frozen is that I have a younger sister. And every time I watch that movie, I think about my relationship with my sister, who uh, we may have fought a lot as kids. And, you know, that's how siblings, that's how siblings be. <laughs> that's how it goes. But um, there is... Nothing like uh, growing up with someone who is almost exactly like you, 
who is made out of the same stuff as you and uh, who would do anything for you. And I would do anything for my sister. And so I see a whole lot of that in Anna and Elsa, and I just appreciate that. After perpetual nonstop winter in the middle of summer, it's probably going to be that most of the food storage of Arendelle was destroyed. And they have ceased um, trade agreements with all of their trading partners based off of the fact that some of their trader partners were usurping motherfuckers or conspiring to help usurping motherfuckers. I fear for the food supplies of Arendelle and Frozen 2. I think they're in a big pickle here. Isolationist. They don't have, I don't see any farms anywhere. I just see a castle. So how are they going to feed everybody after this? This is a very important thing that you're bringing up. I think it's a valid concern, but you know what they also have? On-demand refrigeration. They have the hottest tech, I'm sorry, the coldest technology in town. And I think they're going to be okay. I hope so, because I'm just going to say... You know, if you're out there trying to run a nation or a fairy tale city state and you don't do any trade whatsoever because of your know, fear of them trying to usurp you, you will find yourself alone in an international community, which usually means you're going to get attacked. <laughs> These are hard, real truths that Arendelle needs to learn. Hard, real truths for the fairy tale land. And until next time, stay cold and be kind. And let it go.